Homework. Yes. Homework three, due today. So if you haven't had it yet, email it to me. If you don't see answers up tomorrow, email it to me today. If you don't see answers up tomorrow sometime, email me and I'll make sure I put the answers up since you won't have them back to look for for the exam. Because I'm obviously not going to get them graded and back to you. Well, I could get them graded and back to you Friday morning, but it doesn't do you a lot of good for studying if I give it back to you five minutes after, you know, you have five minutes to look at them. So, but I will put answers up tomorrow after they're due so you can have them up. But if you don't see them by noontime tomorrow, email me and remind me because it means I completely forgot them. Quiz three is due to be completed today. Second exam, second exam, chapters three through nine is on Friday. And we've covered almost all of that. In fact, we're almost through chapter nine. We'll finish chapter nine and go on to chapter 10 today. So we're doing real good. We'll be, we'll definitely have covered all the material. Homework four doesn't apply to you guys yet. Just note I've got 103 and 104. Your two classes are starting to deviate a little bit. So they have a homework four due. You will not have a homework four due probably around the 21st. I'm just going to see where, roughly where we get. I'm going to say probably about the 21st. And then the next, quiz, the next quiz will be on the 21st as well for you. And again, that's an in, that one is an in-class quiz. So that one will be in here and won't be online. So that's what's coming up. Questions, questions, questions. No. Okay. We're ready to go then. Picture of the day for today. Another, another video. So two videos in a row. Uh, it's actually a video of the sun. It's going to show a comet hitting the sun and a coronal mass ejection coming out. So it's stuff that we just talked about last time. So really appropriate video, for the, video or picture for the day. Ignore the fact that the date says October 4th. They never updated the date, but this is the current, this is the current picture. They just never changed the date from October 4th to October 5th. So either that or we've traveled back in time. All right, let's play the video here. And you'll watch, you'll see a comet. Again, this is October 1st. You see the comet coming in from the left there, or right, towards the left, and striking. And then you saw the coronal mass ejection go out. Again, looking at the size of the sun here, you're blocking out a lot of the sun, so you're just seeing the corona. But it's, what they're pointing out there is it's, it's very suspicious. That comet comes in and strikes. The sun looks like it strikes the sun, which it probably does. That does happen all the time. A comet will come in and hit the sun. And there's another view of the comet there. I think it was. That was a different comet. But the comet comes in and will strike the sun. And as you watch it again here, but, and at the same time, almost instantaneously, this material is ejected off the far side. Now, their statement is whether, that is, whether the two are related. They look like they are from this vantage point. I mean, it looks like that comet comes in and hits it and throws material off the other side. What you have to take into account, that comet is incredibly tiny. I mean, there's a comet. It's incredibly tiny compared to the sun. So it's amazing that a comet could do what this apparently has done in terms of throwing material off. So a lot of the solar astronomers think that it is, I keep replaying it, a lot of solar astronomers think that it is just a coincidence. That we're right now at a time of high solar activity, so the coronal mass ejections that you're seeing off to the left-hand side there, you know, are just, it's just a coincidence that the, the comet happens to hit it at the same time. Comet's a nice big ball of ice, 
some dirt, little bits of stuff. But how that would actually affect the magnetic field of the sun to cause it to eject this is a good question and wondered how that would actually, how that would actually occur. Again, it's something that you wouldn't know. It's a theory that you'd come up with. So you'd think about that. We'll go through this one more time since it's only about 40 seconds. But the, what you'd look for, what you'd want to look for, is you'd want to look for more examples of this. And if you're finding more examples of a comet hitting and a coronal mass ejection coming off the other side, then you'd have a good scientific theory that says maybe this is, maybe they are related. If this is one time, and comets do hit the sun all the time too, it's not unusual for a comet to roll into the sun if they happen to get too close and burn up in there. So if other comets hit the sun and it doesn't happen, then you'd throw out, have to throw out that theory as not being very likely. But very interesting. I just thought it was nice that it was one that was actually appropriate for the current days, for the current days discussion. So questions? No, no, no. Okay. Ready to go. We're ready to go back to the sun. Oops, atomic structure again. Cosmic rays, no. Chapter 9, there we are, that's what we're doing. So we finished up here last time, was what we were looking at. And we were talking about what's going on at the center of the sun. So we just looked at a picture of the day that was the surface of the sun. Now we're looking at what's going on deep down in the core. So this is the very central portion of the sun the inner quarter of the sun or so. And that's the only place where the temperature is high enough, more than 10 million degrees, and the density is high enough. So you not only have to have that 10 million degree temperature, you also have to have the particles very squished, very close together by gravity that you can overcome and you can collide these two protons together. So two protons come together, collide, and stick. And that's essentially what is happening here. You have two protons come in, very, very high speeds. They get close enough that they can overcome their natural repulsion for each other. They're both positively charged. You know, electricity and magnetism says they want to be pushed apart. If you put two positive charges close together, they want to push themselves apart. Until you get them, until you get them close enough together. If you get them close enough together, there's a new force called the strong nuclear force that will actually bind them together. So if you can get those two protons close enough, then they stick. But you need very, very high temperatures and very, very high densities. So this is the initial part of the reaction. This is what happens. Two protons come in. What comes out is a deuteron. Just like, it's like a, it's like a, like a proton. It's got a neutron attached to it now. So you had two protons, you lost a positive charge there somewhere, disappeared, we'll find out in a second, and you have one positive charge coming out, and you have two nuclear particles. Deut deuterium is hydrogen with an extra neutron. So normally hydrogen has just a proton, you can have what we call an isotope of hydrogen that has a proton and a neutron. So that's heavy, what we call heavy hydrogen. So that comes out, now we can't just lose that charge. You had, pos you had two positive charges going in, you got to have two charges going out. So charge can't just disappear in the universe. So it had to go to some other particle. And it comes to this one, which we call a positron.
positron. So it's just what a positron is, like an electron, but positively charged. So essentially, it's a form of antimatter. It's the antiparticle of an electron. It's exactly like an electron. Everything else is the same. It's the same mass, same properties, but it has a positive charge instead of a negative charge. And when matter and antimatter meet, identical par- the two identical particles, so if that meets an electron, which it's going to do very, very quickly in the center of the sun, because there's lots of particles there, it's very, very dense, though the positron and the electron will annihilate and form gamma rays. So there's a lot of energy coming out. So the positron will hit an electron, particle and antiparticle meet, boom, they disappear. That matter, that entire portion of matter that was there in that electron is converted to energy. And it's converted into gamma rays that then fly out into the sun and then slowly work their way out to the surface. The other particle that has to come out of there is called a neutrino. So there's one other particle that comes out. We have the deuteron comes out, the positron comes out, and a neutrino comes out. Neutrinos are very interesting particles and we'll talk about them a little more in a few minutes once we get through the actual process by which the sun produces energy. But they have no electrical charge, little or no mass, if, if any, and they travel right through everything. They travel, they're traveling right through you right now. So there are neutrinos from the sun that are streaming out from the center of the sun from nuclear reactions going on this eight minutes ago. They still take eight minutes to get to the Earth. Unless they do travel faster than light, then it's, then it's different. But they're, they're, but they're streaming through the sun. There's many billions of being formed every second and they're streaming right through us right now and they go right through you without interacting, right through the whole Earth and out into the universe. So they're constantly being formed. What we want to, we're going to look at at the end, the last section of this chapter, looks at studying the neutrinos, trying to detect them, detect the one in a billion, one in a trillion that will actually occasionally interact with something so you can detect it because that gives us a direct view into the center of the sun. We can't look at the center of the sun and find out how it's working. I can infer it, I can use you know, computer models to study what, the study what the sun must be like inside. This actually gives us a window to look. If we can detect some of these neutrinos, even a small fraction of them, then we can understand exactly what's going on at the center of the sun. Now you've probably heard the sun produces hydrogen to helium. Right, to form its energy, you probably heard that. We haven't gotten there yet. We've taken hydrogen, protons, two, hy- two hydrogen atoms, collided them together and made another isotope of hydrogen. It doesn't happen that you form, you don't form the helium directly, it takes a few steps. And that's what we're going to look at here, is actually the chain by which it goes. It takes a couple different steps. This first part is what we already looked at. You had two protons, Colliding, formed deuterium, a positron went out, met with the electron, formed gamma rays. And the neutrino just streams out. 
Then, so that's the first step. That's what we looked at on the previous slide. The next step is you need to take two of those deuterium atoms and smash them together. So you take two of these that collide together. Still doesn't form, we're getting, we're getting to helium, we're getting to helium-3. So you actually form a proton, sorry, proton into the deuterium atom, more protons around. As that strikes, it forms helium-3. So now you have two protons and one neutron. So that's the second step. First step is two hydrogens to form the deuterium. Second step is deuterium and proton to form helium. So now we've actually made helium, but we've made a lighter isotope of helium, helium-3. Normal, stable helium has two protons and two neutrons. And that's the final step. You get two of these helium-3s to combine. They smash together, form a helium-4, and send two more protons out at very high speeds to start the process all over again. So the process is a cycle. It continues. And what we call this, the proton-proton chain. And that's the method by which a star like the sun actually produces its energy. So this is what goes on in a star about like the sun, the cooler, any of the cooler stars, and anything even a little bit hotter. Some of the hottest stars use another cycle, use something a little bit different than this. They go, they're much hotter at the core, much denser, and they can actually use a different method to form their energy that works more efficiently for them. But a lot of the energy is coming from right here. It's coming from these positrons coming out, meeting with an electron. So you're forming antimatter, little tiny bit of antimatter, and forming the energy in terms of gamma rays. In order to figure out how much energy is produced, you look at what went in. You took four protons in, and you got one helium nucleus out. A helium nucleus isn't made of four protons, though. Right? It's made of two protons, two neutrons. And a neutron is very much like a proton, except with a neutral charge, but it also has a little bit less mass. It's not quite as massive. So if you add up the mass of what exists here, this four, versus the mass of these four protons that went in, there's a little bit more mass here than there is going out. So, a little bit, so you lost some mass. Somewhere along, somewhere along the road, these four protons lost a little bit of mass and turned into a helium nucleus. That's the net effect. That little bit of mass turns into a lot of energy. E equals mc squared, right? So we can convert mass to energy, but c is the speed of light times itself squared is a tremendously big number from a little tiny bit of energy. Even though that mass is incredibly small, it's not a big difference between those two, between the four going in and the helium nucleus coming out. It's not a very big mass difference, but it's, significant. it's enough that when you're doing millions of those every second, millions of these reactions going on every second in the sun, that, that, ma- that adds up to all the energy that we're seeing from the sun today. So that works, and again, that works in most stars. I'm not going to go into the other method yet. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more. I think we'll hit it a little bit more when we actually talk about the stars. Might do a little bit more when we talk about the stars in the next chapter. But there is one other method for the more massive stars that they use. It makes this one look simple. 
So if that looks complicated to you. You probably don't want to see the what we call the CNO cycle, which would take up a couple slides, as it's a bigger it's a bigger section. Okay, and then finally, last section was neutrinos. I said we were almost done. We almost finished it on Monday, not quite. But the neutrinos come are emitted. Those neutrinos that were made in that first step of the reaction, they escape. Neutrinos are under what are called they're they're weakly interacting. They don't like to interact with other materials. So that most of them come straight through the sun, you know, 50 billion are formed every second, say. They all, you know, a handful will interact going through the sun. They'll go right through it. They'll come right through the ones that are heading towards Earth will come right towards Earth. Most of them will go right through the buildings, right through us, and out the other side of the Earth without us even knowing it. So they go right through everything. But if we can observe them, we can see what is going on with the with the core. Now, I did say, didn't say not interacting. They don't like to interact, but they're weakly interacting, which means one in a billion. Once in a while, it'll decide to interact. So that one in a billion is what we're trying to detect with our detectors here. So they put, the way they did this is they had huge volumes, I think it was of a cleaning fluid with a lot of chlorine in it. And they put it in a mine in the South Dakota, I think in a South Dakota mine, buried it underneath, they put it underneath the ground. Well that gets rid of any sort of other issues that might cause interaction, you know, anything else from space, we wouldn't be able to detect, you wouldn't detect that. So they put this big thing and they could detect, you know, detect the occasional interactions of one of these neutrinos with one of these chlorine atoms. And that would tell us about, again, look and counting how many we see, that would tell us how the sun is working, how the energy of the sun is being produced. The problem at the time when this was being done 20 years ago was that we didn't find, we found the wrong number. We counted about a third of the neutrinos that we could, that we would expect. So we had our models that said here's how the sun is producing its energy. So many reactions going on every second, so many neutrinos should be produced. We could detect how many, what fraction of the neutrinos we're detecting, you know, one in a billion, one in a trillion. And we could figure out how many there were. And we were off, not just by a little bit, you know, well, we detected almost all the neutrinos. We were detecting about one third of the neutrinos we should have detected. And that gave us two options. It meant we didn't understand one of two things. Either we don't understand the center of the sun and our models that tell us how the energy is being produced are wrong, or we don't understand the neutrinos. And maybe the neutrinos are something different. And it turns out it was, you know, it used to be the neutrino problem. Now we've since solved it in the last few years. We've actually found out that it is the neutrinos that are doing something unusual. Neutrinos come in, as the particle physicists like to call them, flavors. Not that they have any taste to them, but they're called different flavors of neutrinos. This detector apparatus would only detect the standard type that comes, that we expect produced in the sun. But it turns out that neutrinos actually change. So once they're formed, they oscillate between three different types. So they can turn into this type of neutrino, type 2, or type 3. So they can turn into one of those three different types and they'll keep oscillating between those for the rest of their lives. And what happens, that means that we're only going to detect the one kind. The one kind our detector is set up to detect. 
If our detector isn't set up to detect those, we're not going to see them. So if we get those, so we we're only detecting then one of the three types, and if in that eight minutes it takes them to get from the sun to the earth, they've oscillated so that now only one third of them are that type, then we're detecting exactly the right numbers. So it was a very good thing for astronomy and our understanding of the sun because now that we understand the neutrino, our models of the sun are correct. We don't have to go back and retry to figure out what is really going on at the core of the sun and why we're only producing a third of the number of neutrinos that we should. And now we understand the neutrino better. We actually understand how the neutrino works and they can actually oscillate between three different types of neutrino and our thing was only set up to detect one of them. So there's an example of what the neutrino observatory looks like and there's a couple of people for scale in it and you have all the different detectors there. You have a vat of the fluid and you have all these different detectors to detect as one of those interactions occurs. So you have all these different detectors down there. So it's down deep in a mine and as I said, I think it was in South Dakota. So that's just some pictures of it to look at what the neutrino observatory looks like. So as I said, gamma rays, when we talked about telescopes, were very hard to observe because they didn't focus. Neutrinos, even harder to do anything with. You have to get this big giant bat to detect, you know, one, you know, at least gamma rays you could detect all the ones that were coming. They were nice high energy, they were easy to detect. You can't detect the neutrinos that way. You only detect, you know, the one in a billion that happens to interact with an atom. The other 999 million plus just stream straight through and out into the universe. So, that is neutrinos. And we're done with chapter nine. Yay! Nine chapters done already. I know, we breezed through some of them. So let me go through the summary, then I'm going to go ahead and that will finish up where your exam is. But then I'm going to go ahead, since we are a little behind, I've got to go on to chapter 10. You just won't have to be worried about it for the final. For the, for the, you have to worry about it for the final. Take that back. You do have to worry about it for the final. You don't have to worry about it for this exam coming up on Friday. It'll be on the next exam. So, the sun is held together. Like all stars, it's its gravity that holds it together. And we just looked at the nuclear fusion that powers it. The layers of the sun, the outer layers, the photosphere is the surface that we see. Chromosphere or sphere of color is around it. And that's only visible during an eclipse, as is the corona. The chromosphere is a little bit cooler than the photosphere. The corona is much, much hotter. The corona is millions of degrees. So corona is extremely hot. Now, to learn about the interior of the sun, we need, we need to use math. So you need to use mathematical models, solve the proper differential equations that explain how the sun works. Luckily we don't have to do it in the class, right? But you can solve those four set of four equations and figure out exactly what the sun is like at every point. We can use, we mentioned helioseismology as a way to study the oscillations of the sun to learn again about the interior. But we can't see it directly. All we can see is the photosphere and then the outer layers, the chromosphere and the corona. We can't see deep down in this, into it. Sunspots are the dark spots on the surface of the sun. They're very strongly magnetic. So they're in areas of very high magnetic fields and they're cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun. They're not cold. Again, I mentioned that before when we talked about sunspots. The sun is maybe 6,000 degrees, the sunspot may be 4,000 degrees. It's still going to melt you if you go there on your spaceship. You're not going to be able to land on it. But they are much cooler than the rest of the sun. But again, if you take that 
bit of matter from the sun, take your giant spaceship with a big claw, scoop it out and put it out in space, it'll glow a nice red. It is still very hot. Is that it or did I skip a slide there? I guess it was a very close short summary on this one. Okay. Nuclear fusion, that's what we just did today. Convert hydrogen to helium and releases energy. And then we talked about the solar neutrinos. Again, the nice thing is they come directly from the core. So they move right through the sun. Means that we see, when we detect neutrinos here on the Earth, we're seeing what the sun was doing eight and a half minutes ago. So we're seeing what was going on at the center of the sun eight and a half minutes ago. When we look at the light from the sun, the light we see from the surface didn't leave the center of the sun eight and a half, it left the surface of the sun eight and a half minutes ago, but it took quite a while to get from the center of the sun out to the surface. It takes a long time for that light to work its way out to the surface of the sun. So, chapter nine is done. And that is where your exam stops, it stops there. So your exam is again, and on the exam, before I go on to the next one, Exam is exactly the same format as the last exam, with one exception. You've got you know, the multiple choice, true, false, fill-ins, and the essays. Same format, choose four or five essays. Same number of multiple choice, true, false, and fill-ins, except I took one question off. There's one less question now. So last time you got 50 points, and you had 54 points to get it. Now you got 53 points to get it. So you've seen one of my exams. Now if you've, next time, if you've seen two exams, I'll probably take it down to 52 and 51, and then you know, so you still, have, you still have a few extra points to get on this exam. It'll be, there's 53 possible, but it's only graded out of 50. So, but it is exactly the same format, obviously different material. And again, don't forget that when you're studying, chapters 3 is one unit, chapter 9 is one unit, and chapters 4 through 8 is one unit. So there's about, the questions are roughly equally split between those three units, not between chapters. So there's not a lot of stuff on the planets. It's, it's about equal. You know, there's as much stuff on the planets as there is on the sun as there is on telescopes. Questions? No? Okay. Then we will go on and get started on chapter 10. Get on to the stars. Alright. And start off with a picture of some stars. Actually, we're not quite, we're start talking about the stars a little bit here, but we're talking really about measuring the stars and how we can determine what we know about how do we learn about the stars. And it was all from the electromagnetic radiation. Everything that we could detect, everything we learn about the stars depends on the light that we get from them. We can't go scoop up a section of material from the star and analyze it and find out what it's made up of. We can't go stick a thermometer in the star and find out how hot it is. We have to just use looking at the light to determine what we see. And if you've looked at the sky, if you've ever been able to you know, take a look at, for example, this constellation Orion from a very dark site, you'll see that there's one star there that looks very, very red compared to the others. And you'll see another star that looks a little bluish. And those are correct. When you look at the stars here, you're seeing different colors of the stars and that is telling us about the temperature. So as a rough idea, we'll find better ways to get a more exact measurement here coming up. But just by looking at the temperature of that star, I can tell you which stars are the hotter and which stars are the cooler. Blue stars are the hottest stars. And I just erased my electromagnetic spectrum, but the blue is the higher energy wavelengths. 
the higher energy, higher temperature. So when you see a bluish star, you're looking at a much hotter star. So blue stars, white stars are hotter, and then the red stars are the coolest. So a blue star might be, sun is 6,000 degrees, a blue star might be 15,000, 20,000 degrees, so significantly hotter than the sun. A red star might be about 3,000 degrees, or significantly cooler than the sun. So just looking at this, we learn about the temperatures of the stars. So just by looking at the light there in that picture, I can point out and tell you some of the hotter stars and some of the cooler stars in that picture. We can also learn about a lot of other properties. We can learn about what the stars are made up of. So actually looking at the light, I can tell you what the stars are made up of. Not from this picture. We need a little more detail to be able to do that. We need to actually use a spectrum. But I can tell you what the stars are made of. So we can determine what elements there are there present in each star. Turns out they're all about the same, hydrogen and helium. And most of the differences that we see between the stars are just in the very trace elements. We can learn how the stars are moving. So I can tell you whether a star is moving towards us or away from us. We can watch it as it moves across the sky and figure out its velocity, how it's moving through space. And we can tell how it's rotating. So I can look at the star and I can get an idea of how fast it's rotating too. Again, just from looking at the light from it. And most of these stars, I can't, you know, we talked about looking at the sun and you can see the sunspots move across the surface. Well, it's easy to understand how you can get that it's rotating. These stars are all just a point. But even that, just analyzing the light from them, I can tell you how fast that star is rotating. So we will be able to learn a lot about the stars, again, just by looking at the light. Because, you know, we can't go send a spacecraft there to look at each star. Nearest star is four light years away, and what is the number I try to remember, but at the speed of the Pioneer or the Voyager, or one of the ones that is streaming out of the solar system now, it will still take it thousands of years to get to the nearest star. They're not traveling anything close to the speed of light. So it'll take them th it would take them thousands of years to get that distance. So what are we going to cover in this chapter? Again, most of what I told you we can determine already. We're going to look at what the stars are like near the sun. So what are the stars like that are close to us? What do we mean by luminosity and apparent brightness? They're two different things. Apparent brightness is how bright something looks to us. So sun looks really bright. So the sun's apparent brightness is very large. The sun's luminosity. Not really that big. Seems like a lot for us only because we're so close to it. But luminosity is really how much energy the sun is putting out every second. And yeah, it's a lot of energy. But compared to lots of other stars, it's quite small. If you took the sun and put it out at the distance of Orion, for example, it wouldn't be visible without a, without a telescope. So, you know, real bright here, but if you put it just a couple hundred light years away, it's invisible. In fact, if you put the sun just 10 light years, 10, about 30 light years away, 30 light years away, it would be about as faint as you could see from a reasonably dark site in North America. So not quite sixth magnitude, if we're talking about magnitude, you can't quite go that faint, but you could actually observe, it would actually be barely visible in the night sky, even only 30 light years away. Well, the galaxy is thousands of light years across. So it would not even be visible. So we can learn about that. We look at the brightnesses. We can look at the temperatures. We can determine how big a star is. We can determine how big, how, what the diameter of a star is just by looking at the light from it. And again, as I said, I can't take a picture of those stars like we can of the sun. I can see that it has some extent to it. When we look at all but the very nearest large, gigantic stars, they all look like a point. 
They all look like a point through even the biggest telescopes. Then we come to the key. And that will be what we'll be spending most of the next probably week and a half to two weeks on is the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. That's the key one for understanding the astronomy of stars. And we'll go through that in great detail. In fact, I'll go through it in this unit in chapter 10. Then instead of going right to chapter 11, actually I come back and I do the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram again. So I actually go through it twice to make sure you, you've got that. Because what you're going to see for the rest of this section on stars, so chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, you're going to keep seeing pictures of this diagram. You're going to keep seeing different diagrams here to be able to understand things. And even when we get out into star clusters and galaxies, you'll still come back and see that again. So we will spend a good amount of time on that diagram right now. And then we'll look. We talked a little bit about distances. A lot of the rest of the, a lot of the, rest of the book has a lot to do with extending the cosmic distance scale. There hasn't been too much because we haven't gotten very far out into the universe yet. You know, we've only been talking, we've gotten out to the sun and the solar system. We talked a little bit about that. Now we're going to start really jumping out into the universe and we're going to talk about how we get those distances. And that's very important because you know, we can't just take a tape measure to the star and say it's so many thousands of meters or so many thousands of inches. or feet. We can't go do that. How do we measure how far away a star is? It's a very important thing to be able to determine and to be able to determine accurately. You know, we look out at the night sky, all the stars look like they're the same distance away, right? Now, that's why the ancient astronomers thought there's a big celestial sphere there that was rotating and all the stars were just little holes in the celestial sphere. Not how it works. We know that now, but it sure looks like that. And you can't just, by looking at a star, you know, you can tell me, well, maybe that one's closer because it's bright. It's brighter. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it's brighter, but maybe it's close, but it's a very, maybe it's really, really close to us, but a very, very faint star. Or maybe that really bright star is, is ten times further away, but is thousands of times brighter. So we'll look at that, and that's a way to have a way, you sort of using that in, indirectly to get the distances. And then finally, going back to our lab from last time, right, that wonderful lab that everybody ripped all their hair out over? No. On determining stellar masses. Well, I'm not going to make you go through all the calculations again, but that's one of the reasons I do that lab is so that you've seen how we can go through those calculations. In that case, we calculated the period of something. If we work that same equation backwards and I knew the period, well, I can observe that if I have two stars orbiting each other. I can observe the period and I can observe how far apart they are so I can determine the parameters of their orbit. Then I can work backwards and I can determine the mass of those stars. Now, if a star is all by itself, we're out of luck. There's no way to determine its mass. You need something orbiting it, and you need to be able to determine the orbital parameters in order to get the mass. So if it's all by itself, a single star sitting there all by itself, no planets, no other stars, you can't determine its mass accurately. But there's lots of stars that are orbiting other things, and we'll use that. Okay. So first distances for solar neighborhood and distances here. Parallax is our first method of getting distance to anything outside of the solar system. So within the solar system we were able to use things like you know, radar. You could bounce radar off of Venus to determine how far away it is. Radar off of Mars to determine how far away it is. You could actually get some distances that way and use that to calibrate how big the solar system is. For stars that doesn't work. I can't send a radar signal to the nearest star. First of all if I did it would take almost nine years to get back. 
so it had to be a pretty strong radar, radar, radar signal to get there and come back. Plus, a star isn't a solid surface, so you can't even use radar to measure the distance to the sun. It doesn't have a solid surface like the Earth, like Mars or Venus does. So if I send a radar signal to the sun, it just gets absorbed and no, you don't get a signal back. So not only would you be waiting nine years to get a signal back, but you never get one. So we can't use that for anything else other than a couple things in the nearest solar system. But what we can use is what we call parallax. And this is the only direct method to determine how far away a star is. And you, 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 you use it all the time to determine distances yourself. You know, when you have, you have two eyes, so you're looking from two different vantage points. That gives you your depth. If you've ever had to walk around with just one eye, and you're in an unfamiliar area, you'll note that you don't quite have the depth perception. It's the two eyes looking from different, different, slightly different positions that give you that knowledge of how far away things are. We do the same things with, this, with a star. If we look at a star in January and see where it is relative to these distant stars, and we come back six months later in July and see where that star is relative to distant stars, it's moved a little bit. So a star that's moved a little bit is closer. And if we measure the amount of this angle, we can figure that out. We can measure the angle. We can measure by how much it's moved against the very distant stars. And then if we measure that angle, the distance is given by 1 divided by that angle. So we measure the parallax. And the distance in what we call parsecs is just 1 divided by the parallax angle. Bless you. So a parsec just means essentially one parsec, I should say, one parsec is about three and a quarter light years. Bless you. So one parsec is about three light years. We use that unit as the definition because it is actually the parallax, a distant, one parsec is the distance of a star that has a parallax of one arc second. So parsec, parallax of one arc second is a parsec. So if you had a parallax of one arc second, remember how small one arc second was, right? We had degrees. We divided those into 60 arc minutes. And we took each of those arc minutes and divided it into 60 arc seconds. And the sun, the sun and the moon were half a degree. So that's a really, really tiny angle. You know, one 3,600th of a degree. And that's a distance of one parsec. or a distance of 3.26 light years. But if you recall, how many stars are closer to us than 3.26 light years? And remember how far away the furthest, the closest star is? We're all asleep. About four? About four light years? So Alpha Centauri is about four light years away. So there isn't a star within one parsec, other than the sun. Sun, yes. But other than the sun, there is no star within one parsec. The nearest star is actually a light year more than that one parsec away. 
So that means these angles that we're measuring are all less than one second of arc. So one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. This only works for the closest stars. Maybe the stars within 100, 200 light years. That's a decent number of stars, but that's nothing compared to you know, how many stars there are in the universe. It only works for the very closest stars. Anything else, that angle gets too small, and we just can't measure it ac- accurately. Because we're kind of stuck with this baseline. You know, you know, if we lived on Mars, we could measure further away, right? Because Mars orbits further out. It's one and a half astronomical units or so from the sun. So you could look at it here and then a Martian year later and your baseline instead of being two astronomical units would be three. If you could go out to you know, Uranus or Neptune or you go to Pluto and do it, you'd have a much larger one. Of course, if you went out to, let's say, Neptune, Neptune takes almost 200 years to orbit once. So you could do your observations, but then you've got to wait nearly 100 years to get halfway around the sun to do your next set of observations. So. Not something you can go make in a lifetime then. But that works, at the beginning, it works only for the very closest stars. To put everything to scale, the nearest star is actually not Alpha Centauri, actually Proxima Centauri. Alpha Centauri is actually a system, Alpha Centauri is the brightest star in a three star system. So Alpha Centauri is, is actually a triple star. There's two stars that orbit really close together around each other. Alpha Centauri is actually quite similar to the Sun in its properties. It's a star very much like the Sun. The other star is a little bit fainter. And then there's a much, much fainter star, a very small red star that orbits around those two. And it just happens that right now it's in the position of its orbit where it's closer to the, a little bit closer to the Earth, the Earth and the Sun, than the other two. To get an idea of the scale, just to give you an idea of the scale of everything, because we te- you tend to look at pictures and everything looks so much closer together than it is. I mean, you look at pictures of the solar system and they put the big sun there and then you, know, you have the planets going out. But to get an idea of how big they are, and this one works, I do another one too, but this one, if the sun is a marble, then the earth is a little tiny grain of sand about a meter away from it. So in between that meter, Meter? About there or so? There's nothing. There's a grain of sand here, and there's a marble here, and there's two two other little tiny grains of sands in between them. That's it. Now the one I have, I have one of my my online classes is doing it right now. I think they're doing it right now, or they did it last week, where they actually, I have them go pace off the solar system. But I do have them do it a little bit bigger. I make them make the sun a basketball, a little bit bigger scale, about, about 12 inches across. If you do that, then Mercury, in order to get to Mercury, you've got to pace off 40 feet. Just to get from the basketball to Mercury is 40 feet away. About 70 feet to Venus, about a little over 100 feet to the Earth. And they'd just be little tiny, you know, peas on that scale, so a little teeny tiny. And there's nothing else in between them. I and mean, the rest of the solar system is empty. And on this scale, with the sun as a marble, your nearest star is about 200 kilometers away, so well across, the, halfway across the state. 
would be your next star. So between our solar system, which is all around the, all around the sun, and the next nearest star, the Alpha Centauri system, would be 270 kilometers. I can't stretch, my arms don't quite stretch that far. They did, that would be amazing. But you'd be halfway across the state. You know, that's a couple hundred, almost 200 miles, not quite. You know, quite a distance away. So quite a distance that you'd have to travel to get to the next star. If you do it to my basketball size, and I know I, fig I think I figured this one out that you have to put the next, next basketball would be on the surface of the earth, you'd have to put it over in the Middle, middle East. So I don't remember where it, where it was, Israel or something, you know, over towards Egypt, Israel, that Iraq, that whole area, but that would be the next star. So you could travel all the space between us, the whole Atlantic Ocean over there, and not pass another star. There'd be nothing in between them except for these few little tiny specks that are right around one star or the other that are the planets. So just to give you an idea, that's empty. At this scale that we're doing here with the sun as a marble, after about 50 meters, you can pace out 50 meters pretty easily, right? That's the rest of it. Everything else is empty beyond that. So the entire, the rest of the space between that 50 meters around where you put your marble, that's our whole solar system. That's everything in the solar system. You've got to go 270 kilometers, so a couple hundred miles to get to the next nearest star. So just give me an idea of the, of the space and how empty everything actually is. So here's the 30 closest stars. And again, all of these are at least, the Alpha Centauri system was a little over four light years away. The other ones are scattered around. You see a couple bright ones. You may, Alpha Centauri you know. Sirius and Procyon are two ones that are visible. Well, they're nice winter stars for the evening. They're actually visible right now, early in the morning. So if you're out at like five, six in the morning, you can see a very bright star. Well, you see Jupiter there, but then down over toward Jupiter out to the south, and then over towards the towards the east would be south. Yeah, east would be the would be Sirius and Procyon. So you can actually see those. But you notice that a lot of these other stars don't have very don't ha aren't actually named. So some of them actually have names. Procyon and Sirius, two of the brighter ones, do. Barnard star actually has a name, but that's named after a person. So these are the only two that actually have traditional names. Some of the others, like Alpha Centauri, Tau Ceti, Epsilon Eridani, are named just using their constellations that they happen to be located in. So the Alpha star of the constellation, the Epsilon star, the Tau, so how order their brightness in the constellation. Most of the others are just ordered by catalogs. So just a certain astronomer who cataloged stars actually labeled them and they're used catalog numbers. What that tells us is that those closest stars really aren't anything amazing. They're not big, bright stars. Most of them, many of these, are not even visible to the naked eye. Yes, a few of them are. Alpha Centauri you can see, but you've got to be down south of the equator. Sirius you can see. Procyon, you know, a couple of these you can see, but most of these other little catalog, little catalog ones you can't see, the naked eye, and they're the closest stars to the sun. So that tells us something about some of those stars that we are seeing, that they are incredibly big, bright stars that we see out in the universe. A lot of the ones that we see out there 
are not little tiny stars like these ones that happen to be close to us, or even stars like the sun. The sun wouldn't be visible if you took it out to these distances. I mean, Alpha Centauri is pretty close, and it's a relatively bright star. It's like the sun, but only because it's so close. If you move the sun out to, you know, 10 parsecs or so, it would be a very, very faint night star. It wouldn't be one of the brightest stars in the sky. It would be one of the fainter stars in the sky. So I'm about out of time. I'm going to finish up with that one instead of starting because I think we go, yeah, we'll go into this, goes into a little more detail and I'll finish this up on, I'll get it right for this class, on Wednesday. (laughs) So I tried to tell the other class Monday and they said, no, no, no class on Monday. So don't forget, there is no class on Monday. That is correct. So we will come back and work on finish chapter 10 on Wednesday. That gives me a couple extra days to get your exams graded. So, But exam is Friday. We will do, like I told you, we'll do the lab first. So I'll have a lab set up for you. It's a sky lab. So you do need your books for this one. You do need your, so at least, well, at least one person from the table, at least because I have an answer sheet for you, needs to make sure they bring their books. You have the instructions for it because all the instructions for this one are in the lab book. So make sure you have that. We'll do that the first hour at 9. And then when we're done with the lab, we'll take your break, and then we'll come back and do the exam. Exam's done. Go enjoy your long weekend. All right. I'll see everybody Friday.